All right, welcome to our class this morning for uh, our continuation of the book of Acts. Let's begin, please, with a word of prayer. Almighty, everlasting Father, we give you thanks and praise for your continual uh, provision for us through in body and soul. We ask that you would enlighten our minds and illumine our hearts today uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit as we study your word so that we may be edified and that you may be glorified. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay. All right. So, um, we've been doing Acts chapter 2. <laughs> it's our third week. But uh, I, I promise you today we will do other things. We will move. Um, as I've said before, this is a class with um, a limited number of weeks. So we're not going to be able to do a total uh, verse by verse sort of study. We're looking at themes. We're looking at topics. And last week in Acts 2, we uh, mostly talked about the uh, topic of speaking in tongues. We looked at Acts chapter 2 and uh, compared that also with 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 to uh, get a, a grasp on the speaking in tongues phenomenon that we see in churches today even. All right. So what am I going to do today? Well, today I have, I want to touch on two topics, but mostly one. We'll see how far we get. Uh, so first, I'm going to talk a little bit about Christology, and then secondly, uh, baptism in the book of Acts. Christology is the teaching of, about Jesus Christ, who he is, um, what his nature is, and what he has done. So there's no way, I mean, this is not going to be a comprehensive doctrinal study on Christ, Christology, but I am going to look at a couple of things in that regard. And of course, it's one of those things that will come up, I'm sure, frequently. Also, same with baptism. When I talk about baptism today, uh, it's not a comprehensive study. I can't answer all questions. We're just mostly going to be looking at the book of Acts, baptism in the book of Acts. And really, even there, I mean, it appears, baptism is mentioned, I didn't count, but maybe eight to ten times, and uh, we'll, do, we'll do mainly two. <laughs> Look at two of them today. We'll see, we'll see what we do. Maybe, maybe it'll carry over to next week, maybe not. All right. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's get cruising here. I want to look, if you've got your Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 2. And uh, there's going to be a couple times where I'm just going to read. And, and so follow along if you, if you have access to that. And uh, so I'll just read a section, and then at the end of that, I'll be able to stop and make comments. We're, we're, we're in Acts chapter 2. So after the speaking in tongues phenomenon and the preaching of the gospel to people from all nations, or many, many, many different nations, people had come, Jewish people mostly, and Gentile uh, proselytes had come to Jerusalem for the festivals, and we're still there, and we're able to hear the gospel preached, the message of Jesus Christ and his resurrection preached in their own languages. So that, that's what we just did. After that, people, some people were uh, amazed that what was going on. There was such a din, such a, uh, it might have even looked a bit chaotic if you've got 12 or more people speaking in different languages at the same time in all various nationalities coming together and hearing it and discussing it, it could have sounded like a bit of a, uh, a chaotic event. And so someone said, 
well, they are, they're clearly drunk. You know, this looks like they're just babbling and they're talking nonsense. And, and of course, Peter says, no, <laughs> it's, not, it's not what it is. And, uh, and, and then Peter shows how, the first thing he does is he shows that uh, this phenomenon is a fulfillment of a prophecy in the, from the Old Testament, the book of Joel, uh, where God says that he will pour out his spirit and, uh, on, on all people. So now I'm kind of moving past that. So we're going to look at, uh, at verse, uh, let's see, uh, probably, let's start at verse 22. And I will read, well, eventually I'll read all the way to 41, but maybe I'll stop a time or two. So men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. All right, I'll stop there and pause. Um, so he begins, I mean, so clearly, so he begins with uh, the crucifixion and, uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the core of the messages of the sermons that are preached in the book of Acts. Uh, the, particularly the resurrection of Jesus is pointed out as the vindication of Jesus. The, the promise, hi! <laughs> the promise of, uh, of his resurrection as uh, fulfillment and indication that he is the one. He, he's the promised one. So you'll see that uh, in numerous sermons in the book of Acts mentioning the resurrection of Jesus as being very central and important. But uh, look at verse 23. Uh, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. The, uh, the death of Jesus was part of God's plan. Uh, the Lord's life wasn't taken from him. He gave it. This was uh, the, the work of lawless men, of, of uh, yeah, got lawless men. But God used them as instruments to accomplish his purposes. So the, the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which looks like defeat by the eyes of the flesh, by eyes of faith, it's not. It's the plan of God uh, uh, to, for that to happen. And then God raised him up. Okay, so loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I think it's C.S. Lewis who says something like, um, it's... Uh, um, well, what he says, okay, yeah, he says uh, the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus is actually not that surprising, Lewis says. It's, it's the crucifixion of Jesus that he should die. But of course he rose. What else was going to happen? He is life itself. I am the life and the resurrection. So for Lewis, the resurrection's not, not uh, demoting it as in terms of its importance, but he's just saying that's clearly what was going to happen uh, because death could not, is not possible for death to hold him. You know, there's a, um, it seems frequently people in a lot of churches will not uh, speak much about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we had Easter a few weeks ago, but the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a central doctrine for Christianity. And I know you know that, but uh, I do think it's worth pointing out Occasionally, you will hear people uh, speak of it in terms of something else. It's not a bodily resurrection, but uh, maybe it's just a spiritual thing. So someone who might be, even churches, 
that might be skeptical about the possibility of miracles, particularly that miracle. So even in churches, churches that take uh, the scriptures in a little different light than we would, might read these resurrection passages in a metaphorical way and say that Jesus rose spiritually or he's alive in my heart or something like that. But, uh, but, but no, the bodily, even though it doesn't use the word body here, the, uh, the, the concept of resurrection was something that Jews knew. It wasn't new from Jesus. Jewish people in the first century, many believed in the resurrection of the body. Not just a, uh, a, a, a thing of the soul or the spirit, not something metaphorical. And I, you know, our, our church maybe has not lost that, but in a lot of cases, American Christianity and, uh, and others uh, do kind of lose the centrality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Not just because it, it, it shows, and it does, it shows that Christ conquered death, right? That, that, is, that is an important part of our preaching. Jesus Christ, by his resurrection, overcame the grave. He conquered death itself. And he also shares that with us. It's not just a matter of us dying and our spirit separating from our body and going to heaven and living in bliss in some disembodied fashion forever. But we believe in the resurrection of our bodies. When we say that in the creed, that we believe in the resurrection of the body, we're not just saying that we believe that Jesus was resurrected and, and walked out of the tomb, but that we will rise bodily on the last day, and we're going to live forever in bodily form. Glorified bodies, we're not going to be sinful or, or susceptible to death or corruption, but, uh, but the, the promise of Christianity, the, uh, if I want to use a fancy word, theological word, our eschatological hope, our hope for the end and beyond, is not just our spirit going to heaven, but rather the resurrection, life in the body, spirit and body reunited, glorification of, of our bodies and souls, and life in the new creation, uh, new heaven, new earth. To recapture that, I think, uh, I think is important today. And it's, it, that's why I point out that in the sermons and acts, uh, the apostles continually point out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a central part of the gospel not something to leave out, or to consider it only one time a year at Easter. I'll just uh, pick up with verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And he goes on, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would uh, set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, uh, that is death, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father 
the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. I'll just continue. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then 36, and then I'll pause. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I want to pause here and discuss a little bit um, the Christology in this passage. Christology is the, is the term for the doctrine, as I said at the beginning, of who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, Peter's using the Old Testament. He's quoting Old Testament passages, which these Jews mostly are going to be familiar with. And they're going to understand more quickly than maybe we would as, uh, as people that are probably less familiar with the text of the Old Testament. They understood that he was applying these prophecies from David's Psalms to Jesus of Nazareth. And specifically, first, the resurrection part. The part that says that his flesh will not see corruption. David isn't speaking about himself there, uh, Peter points out. Who's he talking about? Well, uh, not David, because he's in a tomb, and we know that, and we know where it is. But, uh, but he's referring to his descendant, a son of David, who, who rose from the dead and, uh, and has victory there. Then verse 34, he says, The Lord said to, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Once again, this is a messianic promise. Who is it that sits at the right hand of God and is the, the great cosmic uh, king of the universe? Uh, Jesus Christ ascended and is seated at the right hand of God and is the, the Lord of all. So he's applying that also to Jesus. But then in verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now here is where I think the Christology uh, really, really comes forth. Uh, that, the, that this is what we might call a high Christology in Acts. A lot of skeptics look at the Bible and, uh, and, and, and claim that the idea that Jesus himself is God, that he is the deity in the flesh, that that idea is actually later. It's not something Jesus himself taught. It's not something that his disciples believed or taught. That's what some skeptics will say about the New Testament. That maybe later on, Paul or whoever's writing these things in the late 1st or 2nd century, that they are bringing in some doctrinal development that evolved and, and putting it in there. But we can see, I would say, that, that Peter here, by quoting the Old Testament, is showing that the first Christians understand right away uh, at least by this point, that Jesus is God, that he is God in the flesh, because he refers to Jesus as, as Lord. The word Lord, in a Jewish context, uh, means more than just king or ruler or, or master. The word Lord often has, uh, in the ancient world and up through uh, maybe modern times, the word Lord can mean uh, just uh, landowner, rich man, uh, the, the man who governs the peasants. But in a Jewish context, the word Lord here is, does identify God. 
We know this because in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written in what language? Not Latin or German uh, or Greek even. It was written in Hebrew. Most of it was written in Hebrew. And when it was translated into Greek, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek by the Jews in uh, the 2nd or 3rd century B.C., before Christ, they translated the OT into Greek. And we call that, tr that translation the Septuagint. When they did that, they, uh, they substituted the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh right? the, when Moses on, uh, at the burning bush says, who, who shall I say has sent me? I am has sent you. Um, so identifying uh, God giving himself that, uh, that identifier. I am Yahweh in Hebrew. But the Jews are so conscientious about not using the name of the Lord in vain in any way that, uh, that they'll avoid it. They'll avoid even saying the, the word Yahweh. And so when the Septuagint was translated, they, they, they inserted instead of Yahweh the word Lord. And so if, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm right, I didn't actually check, uh, check my uh, version here. I've got the ESV. But, uh, but if, if not all English translations, at least some English translations, they, they tell you this in a subtle way. When you read in the Old Testament the word Lord, if they're all in caps, L-O-R-D, are in caps, that says that that word is a substitute for the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh. So when Peter, to these Jews, these pious believers, these uh, men who were schooled and steeped in the Old Testament, when they say Jesus is Lord, uh, they understand that to mean that he is Yahweh, he is God. Uh, we do see this in the Gospel of John. You may remember John chapter 8 when, uh, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, uh, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And the, and the Pharisees wanted to, wanted to kill him because they knew he was, he was making a claim to be God or to be one with God or to be equal with God. And I think we just can't let that go, that, uh, that, that this isn't a later doctrinal speculation that gets inserted uh, by um, Paul or, or Greek uh, metaphysicians later on, but that already the first Jews were identifying Jesus. And of course, we know there's a couple of places, even in the Gospels, because sometimes the critics will point out, Jesus actually never says he's God. Well, that John 8 passage where he says, I am, would, would disagree. There's at least a couple places where he allows his disciples to refer to him as God. Uh, my Lord and my God, Thomas says um, at the Easter, his, his encounter with Jesus. So he allows them to refer to him as God. He allows them to worship him. So uh, th th that Jesus is God is not a later idea, not something that the Greeks sort of, sort of put into there, uh, something that the Jews, uh, the, the first Christians understood and proclaimed. So it says that he made him both Lord and Christ. And that doesn't mean that, uh, that he wasn't Lord before his resurrection and ascension. Um, it says, uh, what is it, uh, Luke chapter 2, where, uh, yeah, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord? The angels uh, to the shepherds. He is Christ the Lord. So already Jesus is Lord. He's eternally Lord. But, uh, but he is... He is uh, validated as Lord and Christ, that is Messiah, 
by his resurrection, ascension, and reign on, uh, on high. Okay. So that's what I mean when I say that uh, the book of Acts has a, a high Christology. It's, uh, um, it's not a later thing. In fact, again, on that word Lord, early Christians, many of them, went to their deaths because of this issue. Because of being able to declare that Jesus is Lord. So in the Roman Empire, after a certain point in time, uh, you, you had to confess that Caesar is Lord. You know, even Caesar's divine, okay? And so Caesar is Lord. And this was a test of your loyalty to the empire. And there were periods of time before the 4th century when uh, various emperors would demand this of their subjects, and they would even send uh, representatives throughout the empire to make you publicly confess Caesar is Lord or something comparable to that, like uh, uh, a sacrifice to Caesar or something. And many, of course, uh, Christians can't do that in good conscience. You can pray for Caesar, you can obey Caesar most of the time, you can respect his office, but you can't declare him Lord because Jesus Christ is Lord. So many Christians, because they refused to do that in the first three centuries of the church, were tortured uh, and, uh, and martyred over that very saying, Jesus is Lord. Um, so if, it, if, it's, if it's a small thing, if, it, if we could just substitute that uh, for something else, then, uh, then why die? But because it is essential to Christian faith that Jesus is God in the flesh, not just a prophet, not just a good man or a wise teacher or an exemplar of moral uh, living, but that he is God incarnate on the earth, God with us, John 1. Well, the deity, I'm going to lapse here a little bit into church history because I just can't help it. <laughs> can't help myself. Um, so this, this teaching of Jesus as, as God uh, does get some challenge within Christian circles uh, in the early centuries of the church. We say uh, in church on Sunday morning, we say the Nicene Creed. Okay? You, you, or sometimes we say the Apostles' Creed. But, w- but we say the Nicene Creed. And you know the line in there where we say that, uh, that Jesus uh, Christ, when we're confessing the, the section on Christ, we say he is being of one substance with the Father. Being of one substance with the Father. And without a little bit of understanding of where that creed comes from, those technical terms, being of one substance, I mean, even in, I think in the, Catholic, the modern Catholic Mass in English, they don't say being of one substance. They translate that uh, to consubstantial. Okay, now how, who knows what that means? I mean, <laughs> consubstantial. I mean, being of one substance is maybe a little easier, but w- what does it mean? And why is it there? And why is it important? Why do we say it uh, frequently, if not weekly? Because the early Christians had this debate. Uh, in what sense is Jesus God? In what sense is Jesus God? So in the fourth century, so jumping ahead from the time of Acts, in the 4th century, uh, a, a particular heretic came along called Arius. And Arius said that we can call Jesus Lord, we can even call Jesus God, but it's an honorific. It's a, it's a title, it's a courtesy, it's not a statement of his identity. Okay, this is a, this is a, a, a pastor in the church in the 4th century in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. And he, get, he stirs up a lot of people over this. 
And he, because he says that Jesus is not equal to the Father. And I'm convinced that I think a lot of modern Christians uh, might, might stumble over this too. In fact, I know they do. Uh, Lifeway, which is a Christian organization where they do surveys, kind of like Barna. Uh, they do surveys of what people think and believe. And Lifeway, just I think 2020, so very recently, Lifeway did a, a survey of American Christians of all denominations, but in particular those who identify themselves as evangelicals. And uh, uh, the statement, and I understand, when you put things in a survey, uh, you know, it's all how it's worded, and, and sometimes people are not always clear on what the question is really asking. But, uh, but something like, uh, is Jesus uh, uh, one of God's creatures? Was Jesus or the Christ uh, made by the Father? All right, well, that's false. But many people said yes. Okay, many people, many, I mean, maybe the majority, a lot of Christians said, said yes, that, that Christ, or the Son, is not equal to the Father. And that's why we make such a point of that in our creeds, in particular the Athanasian Creed, which goes on and on and on, about uh, uh, the Son's equality and the Spirit's equality with the Father. But, uh, so, if, if Jesus, if the Son is not equal to the Father, and I'm going to tell you why this matters. I'm not just going to tell you the history. I'll, I'll try to tell you why. Who cares? Um, that, that the Son of God is equal to the Father in, uh, in every sense. So that's what, the, that's what the majority of the Christian, the fourth century, Arius comes along, he stirs up the pot, and he has lots of followers. Lots of people believe in it, uh, follow him. And for centuries thereafter, the church is arguing about this. And the Council of Nicaea was called by Emperor Constantine, a lot of people have misunderstandings about what happened there. But one of the things that, that was done was the declaration in the year 325, the Nicene, what we know as the Nicene Creed, more or less. It was added to later. But that particular line, being of one substance with the Father. Now, it gets a little philosophical, but what they mean is, is basically this. I, I read someone that I've often struggled with how to explain this. But last summer, I read a, a book by a... Um, uh, Christian historian, this is what he said. He said, when we say that the Son is consubstantial, or the same substance with the Father, basically what we're saying is that the Son is God in the same way the Father is God. Okay, that makes sense. That, uh, that he's not inferior, he's not subordinate, uh, and he's not a creation. Arius thought that since uh, we call him the only begotten, that that must mean that there was a time when he didn't exist. But anyway, so the church says, no, no, he's one of the Father. He's co-eternal with the Father. And why this matters is because at least the, uh, the, the Nicene fathers, the, the, their argument was uh, because he had to be God for us to be saved. In order for his death on the cross to be sufficient, the death of one man can't pay for the sins of the world, even if he is uh, the best man ever. But the Son of God in the flesh, his death, his blood, is sufficient, uh, more than sufficient, to pay for the sins of all. So, so, so it wasn't, I don't think, just an argument about minor philosophical terminology, but it had to do with salvation. Make sure we get, confess this rightly. Uh, plus, uh, the church has from the beginning, even in the New Testament, worshipped Christ. We, he, he is our God. <laughs> we worship Jesus. We worship the Father and the Son. But we worship Jesus. And if he is a creature, if he is created by God, 
then, uh, then, then we shouldn't. We can't worship anything in creation that would be idolatry. So, uh, so, so I, I latch on to this, this one word, Lord, and, and give you that long uh, explanation uh, be, because I just try to point out that this understanding, at least in a uh, maybe, maybe not as highly developed form as it gets to be later, but uh, at least at the very beginning, uh, the, 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 the disciples did understand Christ uh, Jesus uh, as their Messiah, but, uh, but as Lord, that is God. Okay. So next I'm going to talk about baptism, but I'll just pause and see if anybody uh, wants to question or push back. Or yes. We have a, do we need a mic? I don't know who's got the... I don't know. Go, we'll take this first question, so go ahead. I'll repeat it. So. On verse 34, it yeah. says, The Lord said to my Lord, it sounds like there are two different words, and it's, I, would, I would have to assume that it's going to be the Father said to the Son. Yeah, said, yeah. But it just sounds like there are two different words. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. The Lord said to my Lord, does that mean that there are two Lords? No, I, I mean, I don't think we have to take it that way. Uh, you know, so, so David has some kind of understanding, at least as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God, I mean, he's still using the word Lord. And it, it, it introduces, I suggest, it introduces at least an, an early concept that within the Godhead, uh, the, there, it's complex, that you know, the Trinity, that term is much later, and the Christian confession of the Trinity, the way we do it, is, is not formulated yet. But I, I would suggest that even in the Old Testament, by using the word Lord twice like that, uh, that, uh, that it might be a hint already that within God there are multiple persons. But it, yeah, sure, I mean, you could look at that and say, well, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, well, that's David. The, the Lord God said to David, you're going to be the king of everything. But, but Jesus, as a descendant of David, he can call himself the son of, son of David. So, yeah. Other comments or questions at this point? All right. So now I'm going to do uh, the, the concept of baptism. We'll do more Christology as it comes up. But we're going to talk a little, up, little today about baptism in the book of Acts. It's not easy. <laughs> this is not an easy one. Because the baptism is referred to several times in the book of Acts. There are numerous occasions where there are baptisms, where they occur. And, um, uh, you know, some, and, and they're described sometimes in a little different ways than what we might be used to hearing. So sometimes it'll say, be baptized in the name of Jesus, period. Well, is that the same thing that we do? Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How's that different? Baptism in the name, should we be doing that? When we baptize, should we be saying, I baptize you in the name of Jesus, not I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that can be confusing. It, it, numerous times, baptism in the, in the book of Acts is referred to in that way. In fact, it's never referred to using the Trinitarian formula that we use. It's never stated. And there are some uh, within the religious world in America that, that do take it that way. Uh, they're, they're called oneness Pentecostals. Now, they're not Orthodox Pentecostals. They're called oneness Pentecostals. And they, they, they're an American organization. I remember I first learned about oneness Pentecostalism when I was a seminary student. I didn't learn about it in class. I was a, uh, my job, my part-time job, was at Lens Crafters. I was the guy that fitted your glasses for you. And... Uh, <laughs> 
you know, I, I kid you not, th this one customer wanted to uh, witness to me, which is great. I admire that. He wanted to share the faith with me, um, and, uh, but, but his way of doing it was uh, immediately to attack the doctrine of the Trinity. He wanted to sweep that away right away so he could get to the real Christianity. It turns out, I mean, I, I did talk to him a few times, and then, of course, in about an hour, he came back and picked up his glasses. And so he had another conversation. And uh, I was polite, but he was a little bit insistent that I recognize his point. And he, he was, he's a pastor. He was a pastor. And it was funny because his teenage daughter was with him and she was rolling her eyes. Oh, here he goes. <laughs> but uh, but, he, but his, he argued using this, that when they said, like it says in, in Acts uh, 2.38, let's just skip down. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So shouldn't we be saying that? And that's what he said. And he said, he pointed out, okay, this is how he argued, what does Jesus mean when in Matthew 28, he says something different and says, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach uh, people to obey everything I've commanded you. So my oneness Pentecostal friend said that, well, uh, baptize in the name. Jesus is a proper name, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not a proper name. Those are titles. Very, very interesting point of view. And so he explained that Trinity, that there's not three persons, that there is rather uh, one divine person who appears in our uh, lives in three different ways. So sometimes he's acting as a father, sometimes he's acting as the son, sometimes he's acting as the spirit. Like three roles or three vocations that uh, this one entity has. Um, and, and the early church had a word for that, modalism, because there's three modes. Um, but, uh, but, but that's what he'll use. He'll use this passage. And, and the, the phrase, baptize in the name of Jesus, or in the name of Jesus Christ, is not just used here. It is used several times uh, in the book of Acts. So I'm just going to say, uh, and, and give an explanation for, for what that is, and why, when we do baptisms, we should say, as Jesus instructed, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. To baptize in the name of Jesus in Acts, they're not giving us a formula to recite. They're stating this as like um, uh, baptize by the authority and command of Jesus Christ. It's, it's similar to when we say we pray in the name of Jesus. Okay, So to pray in the name of Jesus means more than just tacking on to the end of your prayer a formula. You know, you say your prayer. In fact, I did it when I opened with prayer. And at the end of the prayer, you say in Jesus' name or some variation. And that's great. Do that. I'm not dissuading you from that practice. But just saying, reciting that formula is not necessarily the whole package of what we mean by praying in the name of Jesus. To pray, like when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we don't say in Jesus' name. To pray in the name of Jesus means that we, as, as, uh, as those who've been uh, uh, redeemed, we now have the access to God under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We now have authorization to approach God. So when we say we pray in the name of Jesus, we're saying that I myself have no, uh, no right, because as a sinner, as a sinner corrupted human being, I, I, I don't really have the right of access to God. 
it'd be dangerous for me to presume that. But Christ is the way to the Father. No one can come to the Father but by me. So to pray in the name of Jesus means that we are under Jesus. We are in Jesus Christ. And that we can access God under his authority, under his uh, uh, auspice, not our own. So uh, another illustration might be if, uh, well, you know, someone says, stop in the name of the law. I don't know, has anybody really said that? Is it just on TV shows? Stop in the name of the law. It means that, uh, the, you know, the law, under the authorization and command of the law, you should stop what you're doing. It's not just a formula that you have to say. Yet another example, if uh, a king or an ambassador goes to another land, he can speak in the name of his king, right? He has been authorized. He has been chosen and, and given the commission to, to speak in the name of the king, whether he says the words in the name of the king or not. Everything you do is in the name of Jesus as a Christian. We live our lives in the name of Jesus. So, so, so I don't think we look at this as the formula they were using, but rather we are baptizing uh, the, the Christian baptism. We are baptizing the baptism of Matthew 28, where Jesus commands us to baptize and authorizes the church to bring this means of grace uh, to people. So that is what it is, to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Under the authority and command of Jesus Christ, let us pray. This is the baptism of Jesus Christ, which is in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we can actually read that and say, well, whenever they say baptize in the name of Jesus, baptize a, the, the Christ's baptism, well, what does Christ say? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we make that connection. I don't know if you find that persuasive or, or that argument convincing or not, but, uh, but, but I, you know, I, I, think, I think it has a lot of sense there. So baptism in the name of Jesus. All right. Uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit. There are numerous times where that phrase or something or that concept occurs. Either you're baptized in the Holy Spirit or as in the book of Acts frequently, when people are baptized, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's, look, let's, let's look at a couple, look, let's look at a couple passages <coughs> outside of Acts 2. Let me see. Um, well, let's try. Well, let's just pick one. Let's go to Acts, uh, Acts chapter uh, uh, 19. That'd be a good one because I'll want to talk about that more. Acts 19. Everybody have it? Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> As it happened, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, uh, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And, uh, and Paul said, said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. These, uh, uh, 
also a very curious passage in several ways. So these people, these men in Ephesus that Paul comes uh, into contact with are described here as disciples. And, uh, and w- so Paul says, well, did, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they say uh, something to the effect, we didn't know that there was a Holy Spirit or, or maybe we didn't know whether there's a Holy Spirit. There's a couple ways to maybe translate what that is saying. But, uh, but they, 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 they don't understand what he means. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And so he, uh, he, he, he then baptizes them in the name of Jesus. So in what sense are they disciples if they, if they don't know about the Holy Spirit? Which suggests that they haven't had Christian baptism yet. Because in Christian baptism, the Holy Spirit would be mentioned at least. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So in what sense are they disciples? That's the first question. Uh, well... Um, the a disciple is a follower. Uh, they, they, they are perhaps disciples of John the Baptist because they say that that's the baptism that they had received. The baptism of John the Baptist. You know, the forerunner of Jesus Christ was John, a cousin of Jesus by, by his human nature. John, this forerunner, was preaching outside Jerusalem um, to, uh, for repentance for people to repent, and baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. And people were coming, large numbers of people were coming. Probably uh, Jesus' disciples uh, were baptized by the baptism of John. Jesus was baptized by John. The baptism of John, which is what, it, what they refer to, they were, uh, they were uh, baptized, what does it say? Um, into what? They said into John's baptism. John's baptism is not exactly the same thing that, that the church does. It's a precursor, and, uh, and it's not exactly the same thing. So it's, they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit because they had that baptism, not a Christian baptism. Baptism, John's baptism, we see this all over the Gospels. Every time John's talking... Well, the other, uh, another curiosity about this group of guys who say they'd never heard of the Holy Spirit and said they'd been baptized into John's baptism... John frequently talks about the Holy Spirit. He's always talking about that there is a Holy Spirit. So they probably don't mean we don't know if we never heard of a Holy Spirit. That concept is we've never heard of it. If they were baptized into John, uh, John by John's baptism, they probably did hear him talk about it because he talks about it a lot. But it could just mean that we didn't know the Holy Spirit has come because John says, the Holy Spirit, I baptize you with water, but one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. So it could mean here that when they say we haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, it could mean we haven't heard whether the Holy Spirit had come yet. That could be what they're saying. And so, so, so Paul can inform them. He baptizes them in the name of Jesus, sa- saying that John's baptism isn't exactly the same thing. And they receive the Holy Spirit. We'll see throughout, every time... Uh, not John's baptism, but in other cases in Acts, when there is a water baptism uh, into the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Okay? Uh, Like in this case, uh, they they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So sometimes that happened. Uh, People would receive the Holy Spirit and it would be manifested by their speaking in tongues and and giving prophecy or some other miracles to, to show. But, uh, but, but one of my points is going to be that throughout the, the various texts that talk about baptism, the Holy Spirit is a very important presence. The presence of the Holy Spirit 
is tied in Luke's writing of Acts. The whole presence of the Holy Spirit, the gift or pouring out of the Holy Spirit, is tied to baptism time after time. And when we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you receive what was the benefit of John's baptizing in the Jordan. He baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So in baptism, you receive the forgiveness of sins. But we also, uh, we, this is a washing of regeneration through the Holy Spirit. So we receive forgiveness of sins. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's more. <laughs> it sounds like one of those commercials, right, where they're trying to sell. And there's more. One more thing. Uh, uh, and you know, uh, So Paul, right, in Romans chapter 6, talks about baptism being our union with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the power of the resurrection of Jesus and uh, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins can be tied together in one event, namely, namely baptism. All right? Now, uh, like I said at the beginning, this can't be a comprehensive study on, on baptism because there's a lot of other passages that I pull in. Um, so, so I just want to make a couple of those observations, but I'll, I'll pause and see if anybody wants to ask anything. Right back there and then way up front too, Dave. Okay. I'll go really fast. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> okay. I, I think it's worth mentioning that John's baptism for Jesus was interesting that he said this is the fulfillment of all things. Yeah, why should I baptize you? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says this is the fulfillment of all righteousness. Yeah, because what was John's baptism again? For the forgiveness of sins. Repentance. People came repenting, confessing their sins, and baptism unto. Okay, I mean, so it said, you know, this is an important little piece of Greek. Uh, it says to or for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, that's what it's for. It's to that. Um, not... Um, as a result of, you know, be baptized as a result of forgiveness, the result, baptized to the forgiveness. Um, but why do you need that, Jesus? You know, so John knows something enough about Jesus to say, you, you, you don't need what this is. Um, and Jesus, yes, he says, uh, this is to fulfill all righteousness. And there's probably a couple of ways to address that. One way to, be, to say that is that... Um, uh, I think I'm right. Uh, we have a New Testament scholar in the room. So, Mike, if I say something incorrect right now, don't correct me ever again. But at this moment, <laughs> at this moment, because I want to make sure I say this right. I think, um, I think that all four Gospels uh, have the baptism of Jesus, right? Uh, I, I think I'm right on that. All four Gospels. <laughs> yes? John refers to Okay. It doesn't record it in the same way. Okay. So, so, so maybe not that, but, three. but there, are, there are very few things in the life and ministry of Jesus that are uh, in all four Gospels, right? I mean, very few episodes, very few events in the life and ministry of Jesus that are in uh, all, all four, and uh, maybe this isn't even one of them, but like the crucifixion is in all four, the resurrection is in all four, the birth is in two, not all four. So... Um, so the, the, if you can say that the baptism of Jesus is in all four Gospels, then it should be seen as something very important. And what happens... Now, his baptism isn't exactly the same as ours. But when he's baptized, the Holy Trinity is made known. Right? Um, this is my son. Right? The Father speaks. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. 
listen to him. What an appropriate thing to have said at the beginning of his ministry. Okay? He, he, he's being identified by God, the Father, as the Son, and should be heeded. And then the Holy Spirit is outpoured in the, in the, pers- in the figure of a dove. So the, 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 the Trinity is present and manifested. There, there is one other time in the ministry of Jesus where something very similar happens. And it's toward the end of his ministry. So at the beginning of his ministry, we get this authorization, this, this uh, stamp. Then at the end of, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, right before he goes into Jerusalem, according to Luke's gospel, um, he is transfigured. The Mount of Transfiguration. And the, there's three of the disciples are there, and uh, Jesus uh, is glowing like the sun, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah. But, um, but there also, the Father speaks and says, this is my Son in, in whom I am well Something very similar. We don't have the dove, but the Father kind of authorizing, vindicating, identifying Jesus. That's why both those, incidentally, that's why both those stories, the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus, fall within the season in our lectionary, the season of Epiphany, which is, the, the season of Epiphany is about the uh, revealing of who Jesus is, the Son of God. So those, those are there. Now, I say all those things because I think that's what we're supposed to see when we see the baptism of Jesus. Um, another, way to, another additional way to look at that is that, um, uh, no, Jesus didn't himself need the forgiveness of sins, nor did he need to die. All right? But he is, in, in all ways, he is in our, he's our substitute. He comes, he dies for us in our place as our scapegoat, the fall guy, the one. And uh, maybe in his baptism, too, as people are coming and confessing their sins, he's taking that on, onto himself, and, uh, and, and being in that role of, of sinner, almost, right? I mean, he himself doesn't have any evil, but, uh, but he, he becomes, you know, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. So there's a number of things going on in the baptism of Jesus, but, uh, but yeah, good point. So we have a question up here, too. Um, I don't know if I'm seeing this correctly, but, you know, the, the whole timeline seems like God, from the Old Testament, his action is directly from God. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament, the action is directly from Jesus. Now, after Jesus, that he's going to ascend. Now, the, the action is directly from yeah. the Holy Spirit. So God is kind of like divided three parts mm-hmm. to show us, mm-hmm. you know, his trinity, how the trinity works in our lives. Yes. Okay. So, so, so she's observing that in the Old Testament, the work of God, we might see as the Father, you know, fundamentally in the, in the Gospels, we've got Jesus, the Son, uh, working. And then the era of the church after Pentecost is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that, that's a, that is a, a good observation, as long as we don't uh, press it too far, because the three persons of the Trinity are never working solo. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're not doing... Uh, so so the, the New Testament will frequently refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of the Father. And, and the New Testament frequently will say things like, uh, the Father sent the Spirit. So God, is, the, the three persons of the Trinity should be understood to be at work 
through all things. But yeah, one or the other might be more upfront, right? And uh, anyway, and there are some who will say, and I don't know, I don't, I don't know if this is uh, quite right, but there will some who will say that if you look through the Old Testament, um, like the like the burning bush, when uh, God speaks to Moses, maybe we shouldn't just see that as the Father speaking. But, you know, the Son is the Logos. The Son is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So maybe when we see these uh, uh, epiphanies of God in the Old Testament, when they speak, uh, the speech of God is the presence of the Son. So not to divide them up and to sort of, this one has a job that this one does. I mean, they do, you know, because only the Son died on the cross, right? The, the Father didn't die, the Holy Spirit didn't die. But... Uh, but, uh, but, but re- also remembering that every th- action is the whole being, is this one God. Yeah. Other, other comments or questions? I have a couple of minutes yet, right? I mean, Dave, 10, 15, 10, 20? What is it? You got two more minutes. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to say something really fast. 60, uh, 120 seconds. <laughs> so I'll pick up with this next week, too. But I do want to also, I, I wanted to point out, um, when I talk about baptism in the book of Acts, I want to talk about the baptism and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans. Okay, so Acts chapter 8. So uh, if, if you want, <laughs> go ahead and look at Acts chapter 8, 14, 17. I'll fly through this and then I'll pick up with it next week. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Now, you know the Samaritans. If you know the Gospels, you've heard of them. Okay? So Luke, Luke talks about the Samaritans. The, the Gospel of Luke talks about the Samaritans in a couple of very memorable moments. Uh, the Good Samaritan parable is in Luke. Right? Um, uh, uh, where else? Um, the, the, the lepers that are healed. Right? Jesus heals ten lepers, and, only, and they go away, and only one comes back to give thanks, and it's a Samaritan. And then, and then in John's Gospel, we have the woman at the well who's a Samaritan. And at the, at the woman at the well story, uh, the, John writes, um, and Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, Jesus clearly did. But, uh, but to point that out, John says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. There's many other ways. I'll do it next week and flesh it out. But there's many other ways we can say that Jews and Samaritans lived in the first century with tremendous ethnic strife, ethnic tension, even hatred. And in Acts 1, verse 8, I'll I'll just tell you, in Acts 1, verse 8, uh, uh, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, wow. I mean, John and James had, had said, let's ask Jesus, let's call down lightning to destroy these Samaritans for rejecting us. Jesus didn't take that suggestion. <laughs> Acts 8, 14, 17. I'll read it real, real fast. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, okay, so these are the 12, or, or, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. John. The John who had said, God called down fire from heaven onto these people. That John. Peter and John go and prayed for them that they might receive, the Samaritans, and prayed that they might re- receive the Holy Spirit for it had not, he had not yet fallen on them. They'd only been baptized in the name of Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is significant 
I, I just think it's interesting that John, who hated them, wanted to destroy them, is now, in a way, he is bringing down fire on them, the fire of the Holy Spirit, in a way, right? And so, the, what, what human beings cannot do to bring and bridge the lines of hatred, the Holy Spirit is doing here. And there isn't a Samaritan Christian church and a Jewish Christian church. They, are, they receive the whole, same spirit. We're done. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll pick it up with that on uh, next Sunday. Happy Father's Day.